read uh, the first 17 verses. Acts in chapter 18, please. And uh, as you find that, having found that, and if you're still looking for that, just stop for a minute because I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and I pray that you would enable us to hear it uh, and that we would receive this word, not as simply the words of men, but the very word of God, which it is. Uh, We know that as Luke uh, was writing, uh, however much he may have been aware of your presence, we don't know, but this we do know, that you were through him uh, laying out all that's is necessary for us to know concerning you and ourselves, the world in which we live, uh, so that we might come to faith in you and walk with you. And so, Father, we pray that you would use this word to that end, that we may know you, that we may know you more deeply, and that we may walk with you, that you may be glorified. Uh, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts in chapter 18 and verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go uh, to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, uh, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself, yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention uh, to any of this. Now, as I read this, the most startling phrase I find here is in verse 9. And it's this little expression, do not be afraid. Now, the reason I find that startling is on two counts. One is that it comes from the lips of Jesus. Um, it's, I'm not, I must confess, terribly fond of red-letter editions of the Bible. First of all, I don't like reading red. Uh, you know, it's just, it's not a good color to read uh, for me. Secondly, uh, it's confusing in one sense because it gives the impression that these are the really inspired words in the Bible as opposed to the other ones. But the truth of the matter is, they're all God's word, every word in the Bible. So to distinguish it like that. But it's, it's startling if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, which I just happen to have this morning, uh, when you're reading through the book of Acts and not the Gospels, to read something in red. You're thinking, well, Jesus, we expect him to be talking and being quoted and all of that in the Gospels when he was, quote-unquote, alive and on the earth. But now we see it in red here that Jesus is speaking to this one named Paul, uh, this missionary, this apostle. And it's startling in in that sense just to see it happen because it doesn't happen very often, these verbal manifestations, these verbal visitations uh, of Jesus. It didn't happen often then, doesn't happen often if ever now. And so it's startling to see that this very Jesus who lived and died, rose, ascended, 
This is Paul's second real verbal account with Jesus, encounter with Jesus. The first you remember uh, on this road when he was going from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute Christians and he was knocked off his horse and Jesus spoke to him and all of that. And now Jesus comes to him again and he says to him, don't be afraid. Now, the second startling part of this isn't just that it comes from Jesus, but it's to Paul. Now, why do you think, this is a really hard question, why do you think Jesus said this to Paul? Probably because he was either afraid or tempted to be afraid and to be paralyzed by this fear and to stop speaking the, the gospel. And so Jesus speaks this to Paul and, and we have a tendency, I have a tendency, to romanticize Paul's life, to think he was this brave, big, strong guy. And yet he never portrays himself that way at all. He portrays himself as, as a guy who's afraid at times. Most certainly we'll see in Corinth as he arrived there. But Jesus must have seen that in him as well. So starting because it's Jesus, the very Lord of glory, speaking to this particular person, a particular person in time and space and right there... Jesus, his voice, speaking. Now, now, now Luke, I think, uses that, the fact that it's Jesus speaking, to help us to see, to remind us to see that this is the work of Jesus. This whole thing that we read about in, 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 in the early church is Jesus at work. You remember that when Luke wrote his first volume, we call the Gospel according to Luke, when he wrote his first Gospel, he did it so that this particular person to whom he was writing, and us as well, would be able to realize that everything that had been said about Jesus in terms of his work and his life and all that was really true. That these things that this man had heard, these things that, that we come to now know, are really true about the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And so, so Luke lays this out in his first volume in, in the Gospel according to Luke to make sure that we really get it, that we really know that this is what Jesus had begun to do and teach. And now as he comes in volume two, he wants us to realize that Jesus is still at work. And so we have this, this, this letter that we call Acts, or that is actions, things that happen. That's why it's called Acts, things that happen. It's not Acts like Acts, A-X, Acts, uh, that you know, somebody's getting axed. But uh, these are actions that people are taking. Uh, and it's the actions we think of the apostles. So it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Well, we realize that it's bigger than just the apostles, isn't it? And so some would refer to this as the Acts of the Holy Spirit, to what the Holy Spirit is doing through the apostles. And that makes great sense. But really, I think, as we've said before, that, that in Luke's mind, these are the Acts of Jesus. The continuing acts of Jesus, he's doing it by his spirit and through these apostles and through his witnesses, but it's still Jesus at work. And we see it now, that Jesus really has been exalted, that Jesus really is ruling and reigning. And so he comes to this man, Paul, and says, don't be afraid, keep speaking. In a sense, he's saying, I know the means by which my kingdom is going to expand, and it's going to expand by my witnesses continuing to share this gospel, continuing to speak this truth. So you can't stop talking about it. So don't be afraid. Don't let your fear paralyze you and shut you up. So keep talking. And then he gives him this, this little bit of assurance as he goes on to say, I'm with you. No one is going to attack you, which by that time in Paul's life must have been really good news. Because no doubt he could look at various parts of his body and see where he had been attacked. Where he had been stoned in Lystra and left for dead. That's a hard concept for us to think about stoning, isn't it? I mean, we don't, we don't usually see that. That isn't a, a part of our particular um, culture. But there it was not uncommon in terms of punishment to think that people would hurl stones at a person so much so that they thought he was dead. So they left him thinking he was dead. And so couldn't he have seen the marks on his body and, and, the, and, and the, 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 the beatings and the arrest and all of that. And don't you know it was good news for him to hear at that point in time. <laughs> They're not going to beat you here, Paul. You're not going to be harmed here. Now that was a, what we call an occasional promise that is a promise for that particular occasion. That wouldn't hold true everywhere Paul went, but it would hold true in Corinth. In fact, miraculously so, as he's, as he's, not, as he's arrested but not harmed because of the intervention of this 
this judge who's not even a believer, who just says, I just don't want to get involved in this, so he's out of it. So they beat somebody else instead of Paul. So he says, you won't be harmed here. And then he says, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so you get this sense that Jesus really is in control of this whole situation. He says, there are people here who want to harm you, but don't worry, you won't be harmed because I won't let them. I'm sovereign, I'm ruling over this whole deal, so I won't let them. Don't worry. You have my word on that. They're not going to harm you. And I have many people in this city, so keep talking. Because the way that my people are identified are when they hear the gospel, they come forward. You get the sense that Jesus was saying the same thing that he told his disciples previously when he said, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And so he's saying to, 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 to Paul, don't stop talking because you're my voice. Don't stop talking because you're my witness. Don't stop talking because there are many people in the city, when they hear you talking about me, they're going to rise up. They're going to come forward. So, so keep on with this message. Keep on with this work. But again, you get the sense that it's Jesus who's in control of all of this. And so he comes to Paul and he says, no, no don't be afraid. You get a sense that Paul at this point in time was discouraged. Turn to 1 Corinthians and chapter 1. Paul writing back to this church in Corinth, and I'm sorry, chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And he's just giving a, a brief recollection, if you will, of how it was when he came to Corinth. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 2, 1. He puts it like this. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you uh, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Right? No doubt Jesus had picked that up with Paul. He's afraid. And we know that fear can paralyze us and keep us sometimes from doing that which we should. Thus Jesus comes to him and says, don't be afraid. So he says, I come with much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in in plausible, that is to say, greatly persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But Paul very autobiographically says that I was afraid when I came to you. Jesus picked up on that, knowing that his fear could paralyze and keep him from speaking. So came to him and said, don't be afraid afraid. Paul had much to discourage him. I mean, just think about it. Socially, relationally, everywhere he went, the more successful he was, the more painful it became for him. Uh, He was cast out of the synagogues very often, initially when he came to first share with them. Oh, some would believe, but but there would come a time when he would be rejected, just as he was in Corinth there, from the people in the synagogue. And while even here he, he sounds very defiant, like I'm going to sort of wipe the dust off my feet and, and leave you, remember what he says in Romans in chapter 10 about his own countrymen. He says, I desire more than anything else for them to be saved. In fact, in, in fact he says in that passage, if, if I could give my life for them that they would be saved, I would. What an amazing thing to say. So don't you know it just ripped his heart when his own countrymen rejected the gospel? even as he shared it. And he knew he was to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, so, so, so that was part of it. But, but still, don't you know that would rip a part of him out every time he got kicked out of the synagogue for talking about Jesus? And then, even still, he had been rejected and run out of town, most recently out of Athens. And his run out of town, out of Athens, was quite different than in the other places because they mocked him. They laughed him out of town in Athens. He, he went there and he, and, he, and he laid it out with them and, and tried to engage with the best philosophers. And it says, oh, a few believed, but, 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 but they mocked him. And some said, oh, we'll talk about this again. How condescending. And there he left Athens. In some sense, defeated. He comes to Corinth alone. And no doubt broke because he has to go looking for a job. He misses the, the, the amazing providence of the fact that if he goes to the tent makers guild to get a job, the trade union in a sense for the tent makers, when he goes there to get a job, he runs into fellow tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila, who just happen to be believers. That's amazing. 
He's come to Corinth to, to establish the church, to preach the gospel, to be a missionary there. He's broke. He needs a job. So he goes to try to support himself. And again, just parenthetically, how distressing is it to be doing the Lord's work, getting persecuted, and then on top of that, have to go find a job because you don't have any money and there's nobody there to feed you. And there he was. So he goes, he misses, again, this great irony that, that they, Priscilla and Aquila, happened to get to Corinth because they were kicked out of Rome for following Jesus. They were part of the Jewish group in Rome who had been following this one Jesus. And so they were kicked out there, just so happened, to end up in Corinth at the same time that Paul just happened to need a job and just happened to get there. So God provided him fellowship, but, but no doubt that was not as satisfying to him as, as it would have otherwise been in the midst of his fear, in the midst of his discouragement. You know, when you're discouraged, you don't always see that which otherwise would be exciting to you and encouraging to you. Your eyes are just glazed over. Your heart is sunk. And there he was, laughed out of Athens, broke, comes into this new situation. He's alone, at least until Timothy and Silas show back up again, has some fellowship with these two people making tents. Uh, but other than that, he's in the city, like being in New York City, thinking, okay, my job is to convert this place, and it's just me and these other few people, and I'm broke. And there he is. And Corinth, you see, was not an easy city at all. If you would begin to look around the landscape of that place, you'd realize this is going to be as difficult, if not more so, than Athens. Because Corinth, as well as Athens, but Corinth was a, a place of great wisdom. At least it thought itself to be this wise city. It was the capital city. So much went on there. It was a, a huge city of commerce, very wealthy because of its, its particular location. The trade there was great. And so the people in Athens were, were quite wealthy compared to the rest of the ancient world. And he came into this place of wealth and of great immorality. In fact, the word... Uh, Corinthiazomai in Greek, or was a word that was a slang expression for immorality. If someone were immoral, you would, you would call them a Corinth, in a sense, and everybody would know what that meant, uh, because it was known for its immorality. Up on the hill was the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And there were more than a thousand prostitutes in that temple. And to worship would be to engage with those prostitutes. Corinth had over 10,000 prostitutes at work in a city of 200,000. And, and that was the very nature of the city. And so no doubt Paul looked out in, in that context and says, Here I am, the last place I was laughed out of. There's only a few of us. We're broke. Uh, and how is it then that we're ever going to confront this particular city with the gospel? And that's the reality of life. You know, the things that discourage Paul are the same kinds of things that discourage us in the context of relationships. Isn't it discouraging in the context of relationships when you feel alone, when you feel like no one appreciates you, when you feel like nobody's really with you? And here you find yourself alone. How discouraging that can be. How discouraging it is when, when our work isn't going well to the degree that we're broke, that we don't have any money, that, 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 that we look and we have needs and it seems like they're not being fulfilled. How discouraging that can be. How discouraging it can be when our work is unsatisfying. So how discouraging it is when we're lonely, not appreciated. How discouraging it is when our work doesn't go well. How discouraging it is when we look in the context even of our spiritual lives and we say, I've been struggling with this sin all my life. And here it is again. Won't I ever get around this? Won't I ever have victory over this? Won't, will this ever stop tempting, plaguing me? Won't I ever stop falling for it? <sighs> right? And then we see the work of ministry that we have to do that God calls us to. And we go, I know I should share with my neighbor. I know I should share at work. I know I should talk about but But, 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 but there's so many things that keep me from it, some of which might well be my own fear. What are the things that discourage you? Understand they were the same kinds of things that discouraged Paul. In fact, as we read through the scripture, one of the, one of the validating points of reading through the Bible is its realness, that there are real people who face real life in real kinds of ways and get discouraged, uh, and to get discouraged about it. I mean, Moses had deep bouts of discouragement. 
Here he was, the great leader, Moses, of these people. But these people were difficult to lead. And there are many times, even after some great victories, even after they made it through the Red Sea, and the people started complaining that Moses said, I can't do this anymore. God, just, just take me out. Or Joshua, after they have this great victory in Jericho, go up into this other community called Ai, and they lose that battle. Now, if you're familiar with that story, you know why they lost that battle. But the point is that Joshua went to God discouraged and said, I'm done. I don't want to lead these people. I don't want to be the general anymore. Could somebody come in and take my, take my place? Right after the prophet Elijah had a great victory with, in a place called Mount Carmel, Again, if you're familiar with that, you, you, you know the great victory there. It was, it was amazing. But, but then the word came from this little dinky woman named Jezebel that she had a contract out on Elijah's life, that she was going to kill him. And he got very depressed and very discouraged. And so we see it in the context of all the Hezekiah. He gets discouraged. We see it with David as we read through the Psalms. There's, there's discouragement because enemies are coming against us. In fact, one of, the, one, of the, one of the classic cases of discouragement takes place in the, in the Old Testament book, Nehemiah. If you, if you can find that fast. Uh, Nehemiah in chapter 4. In verse 1. Now, if you remember this, the story of this man, Nehemiah, he was uh, called by God to do something that if he really had thought about, he would have realized could never be done, which was to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a pretty big city, and the walls were just rubble. It was just a bunch of dirt and stones, and, and, and it was his job to rebuild it. That would take decades. They did it in a few months, amazingly, but he didn't know that at the time. But, 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 but that would have taken decades and he had a group of, 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 of unskilled people, and there were, there were enemies around Jerusalem who didn't want the walls to get rebuilt. And chapter 4 in Nehemiah is kind of a, a look into how the enemies discouraged uh, the people. Verse 1, now when Sanballat, uh, he was one of the enemies, bad name, obviously. Uh, I don't know where his mother was when he was named. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews and said in the presence of his brothers and the armies of Samaria, so get the picture, he's, he's a pretty big guy, he's a pretty powerful guy, very well known, and he, and he comes to them and begins to tell them uh, why they're not going to be able to accomplish this task. And he says it not only in their presence, but also in the presence of the army. So, so everybody's in on this. And he says... What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and rubbish and burned ones at that? And so, again, he's pointing to all the reasons why they won't be able to get this done and all the sacrifice that it's going to take and all the time that it's going to take. It's going to take more than a day. It might take the rest of their lives for all they knew. And so he was bringing that up to them. Verse 3, Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. So again, saying, this just isn't going to work. Then verse 4. Nehemiah, the people cry, Oh, hear, O oh, our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up. Be plundered in a land where there are captives. Don't cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they've provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And so you get a sense that, 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 that they're overcoming, verse 6. So we built the wall and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. And so that first little bit didn't really work. They still had a mind to work. They got it half built, verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashtadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them as uh, day and night. Again, sounds good, verse 10. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. That's our first indication that the plots are beginning to work, that the people are beginning to get discouraged, even though they've had a good start, but they're only half done. And our enemy said, 
they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Another little word that's going in them. Be careful, we're going to do this secretly. We're going to kill you. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us, that is, leave here and come back to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, uh, then Nehemiah just goes on and tells what he did to combat this. But, but you see this sense of discouragement, and that happens with us. We see what's before us, and we say we can't. We see what's before us, and say there's no way that's going to work. You know, parents get discouraged raising their kids. Why? They look at the world in which they're raising their kids. They look at their kids. They look at themselves, and they say, there's no way we're going to survive this. There's no way this is going to work. And then they read reports about the percentage of kids that do this and the percentage of kids that do that. And they say, there's no way we're going to make it through this. And they get very discouraged. People read the newspaper about their work situation and say, there's no way that this job is going to last me until I retire. There's no way that this is really going to provide for me. Technology is going to change. My company is going to get sold. Something's going to happen. And my life is just going to be in turmoil. And you get discouraged. It's very easy to do that. And people get discouraged in their marriages. When things begin to go, uh, begin to get difficult, and we begin to think, will this ever be able to be repaired? And discouragement sets in. And then as Paul, we begin paralyzed by that, stop talking, and then it gets worse. So the question is, how is it that Jesus really encouraged Paul? What did he say to him really that enabled him not to be afraid? And I think it's in that little expression where Jesus said, I'm with you. Just that little expression. Because you see, as we read through the scripture, we, we realize that it's that expression that always strengthened the people of God. The final word of Nehemiah to the people was this, remember the Lord. There's this sense in which he was saying, yeah, you see the wall's only half built, you see the rest of the rubble, you see the enemies, but, but, but don't fixate on that. Remember the Lord. He's the very one who's called you. In fact, the presence of God is the real distinguishing mark of the people of God. Turn to Exodus and, uh, and chapter, uh, where do I want to be? Chapter 33. Exodus in chapter 33. This is a, an incident where it's, 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 if you remember Moses, they go to Mount Sinai to get the law. Moses goes up, has been up on the mountain. He's been gone so long that the people build this golden calf. They begin to worship. God gets upset. All kinds of things happen. And, and then finally God says to, to Moses... You, you can go, you t- take the people, get them out of here, <laughs> move them to the land of promise, but I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel, but I'm not going to go with you. So that unnerves Moses as well it should. And here's Moses' intercession. This is Exodus chapter 33 um, and verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, uh, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have... Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. So Moses is saying, listen God, you've said all these nice things to me, like I'm your friend and, and all of that. Well, why aren't you going? Give me the plan. Verse 14. And he said that as God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, that is, Moses said to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses didn't get it. He wasn't quite listening. He was so involved in the fact that he was afraid that God wasn't going to go with him, that when God said, I am going to go with you, uh, he still sort of carried on his line of, of argument. Verse 16. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct and I, your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? See, that's it, isn't it? God is with 
us. God is with his people. Moses said, what makes us different than everybody else, God, is that you're with us. So if you're not with us, we're not anything. We're not any different than any other nation. That's the distinguishing, distinguishing characteristic of the people of God in that sense, that God is with his people, that he is for them. And so you see, in, in every instance, that very fact that God is with us should calm us, should give us peace, should give us strength, should encourage us, give us courage to go on knowing that he is in fact with us. Jesus says to his disciples, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That is the word that always strengthens the people of God. It strengthened Moses even before when he first learned of this. Turn back uh, to Exodus in chapter 14 um, in verse 13. Very, very familiar passage of scripture, but let me set it up. Let me go back to chapter 13 in verse 17. In Exodus 13, 17, we read this. When Pharaoh let the people go, so this is when the Israelites left Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The scene is this. They leave Egypt, they had been slaves. They could have gone the, the quick route, right? So when you're plugging in your GPS, do you want the shortest route? They went the safest route. So God knew the shortest route might not be the safest, at least for them, at least how they would understand it. They might get discouraged. So, so he doesn't take them the, the shortest way. He takes them the longer way. But the longer way takes them and butts them right up against this sea, the Red Sea, that they couldn't cross. And at the same time, they were butted up against the Red Sea and couldn't cross it. Their enemies were coming up behind them. And God, in essence, is saying, that's exactly where I want you to be. That's where I've led you. I've led you to a place where you can't cross, and if you turn and run, you'll be killed by your enemies. Just as an aside, if you're facing right now a situation where there's a barrier in front of you, and if you leave and turn, you'll die, you're probably in the will of God. So what does God do? Exodus 14 Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not. <sighs> fear not. Holy cow. I can go this way, and if I go that way, I die. But he says, don't be afraid. Why? Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Why? Because, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. In other words, God is with you. What was the word that Joshua lived on? that enabled him not to be afraid. It was that word where God said to him, I'm with you. Meditate on my word. I'm with you. All the time. I'm with you. What was the word that was given to Jehoshaphat, the great king, who when he looked around on all sides of him, realized that his enemies were coming against them and he was no match for them. The word of the prophet to Jehoshaphat was, don't be afraid. God is with you. He really is here. God is with you. He is, in fact, uh, for you. What is that great word that we think about at times when people die? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. Who is you? God who is God, the good shepherd. Who is the good shepherd? The good shepherd is the sovereign one who leads and protects. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That is, when my shepherd has his rod and staff, the rod is the thing that he used to fight off the enemy. The staff is the thing that he used to pull us out of difficulty and to move us along and to lead us. As long as my shepherd is there, as long as he has his rod and his staff, then I don't need to be afraid. Why? Because he's stronger than my enemies and he knows where we're going and he's able to get me there. And so as long as I'm with my shepherd, as long as he's with me, as long as God is my shepherd, then I need not fear. The Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains tremble at its swelling. In other words, when everything is falling apart, when the mountains are falling into the sea, which is not a good thing, right? You don't wake up and have the mountains fall into the sea and say, well, this is going to be a good day, right? When the, when the oceans are tsunami-like, it's not going to be a good day. It's going to be a devastating time. But the word to us, amazingly so, is don't be afraid, therefore we will not fear. Why? Well, verse 10, be still and know that I'm God. God's saying, I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. Don't worry, I'm with you. I'm for you. You belong to me. That's always the way that it is. The comfort for the Christian, the encouragement to this Christian, the thing that gives the Christian courage in the midst of discourage is the very fact that God is in fact with us. Paul knew that. Now, of course, that's only true, that is, it's only encouraging that God is with us if we know that he's for us. <laughs> if God is with us and he's not for us, we're in big trouble. And the only reason Paul would know that he was for him, that is for Paul, was because of the cross. And so when he comes to Corinth, the thing that's on his lips, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, is this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the thing. When, 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 when Jesus comes to, to Paul and says, I'm, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Well, is that good or is that bad? It's good if you know the cross. If you're good if you trust in him by way of the cross. It's true if you, it's good if you understand the cross because it's, it's through the cross, you see, that we know that we belong to him and that he receives us and accepts us in God. And so then it becomes good news, you see. And when Paul looks at the situation, he realizes this is the message they need. Because this is the message I've needed. This is the message that will save them. This is the message that saved me. How, how is it that I came to Christ? How is it that I came to be accepted by God? It wasn't because of my strength. It wasn't because of my eloquence. It wasn't because of my righteousness. It wasn't because of my goodness. It was because of God. It was by way of the cross. And he says this cross is a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness. The Greeks. It, is, it, it doesn't really appeal to anybody on its face. <laughs> the Jews were looking for a sign, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says the Jews were looking for a sign. Jesus gave the Jews signs all the time. What else could he do? It was prophesied that when the Messiah came, the lame would walk. So what did Jesus do? He took crippled people and made them walk. And he missed it. He said, no, 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 that's not what we want to see. It was prophesied that when the Messiah came, the blind would see. So what did he do? He took blind people and he gave them sight. And they said, no, 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 no. That's not what we really think will point to the Messiah. It was prophesied that people would receive life. And so what did he do? Found some dead people and they became alive. And they said, no, that's not what we want to see. Paul knew that their blindness was no more than his blindness because he didn't see it either. It was foolishness to the, to the Greeks, the, the wise ones. They said, no, 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 that's not how anybody would be accepted by God because nobody had a category in their brain for that kind of love. Nobody had a category in their brain for that kind of wisdom. Nobody had a category in their brain for how could a righteous and holy God accept unholy and unrighteous people. That's an unsolvable dilemma. If you have a holy God who's righteous and just and, is, and really is the judge against that which is wrong and you have a group of people who do wrong, how are they ever going to come together? Especially when the penalty for doing wrong is something eternal. 
and it's eternal separation from this one who is holy. So how can they ever come together? It's just an unsolvable problem. They can't be good enough. They can't make up for what they did. He can't change as God over here. He ceases to be God. What, what kind of wisdom can solve that kind of problem? It's the very wisdom of God that none of us would see and none of us would get. It's the very wisdom of God that says, here's what I'll do. I'll take it. His very own one who'll be born and who'll live and he'll stand for you. He'll die in your very stead. He'll take the wrath. He'll take the punishment. Trust in him. And then my justice is satisfied. And your heart is changed. And we can then come together. And the Greeks missed it. And Paul would know he missed it too. He heard Stephen's sermon, which was quite eloquent. In fact, I'm sure that Paul, being a preacher, stole very much from Stephen's sermon. And when he was going to the synagogues, he repeated very much what Stephen had once said and that he didn't believe because at the end of Stephen's sermon, his response wasn't to raise his hand and say, I believe in Jesus. His response was to raise his hand and say, put your coats here and kill that man who just preached that sermon. See, the cross breaks through everybody's pride. In fact, Paul puts it like this as he writes to the church in Corinth, chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Who is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demanded a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. The stumbling blocks to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the only difference, as Paul understood it, comes in verse 24. First Corinthians chapter 1. Those who are called. And he understood the grace of God. And so he could say in verse 30, He that is God is the source of your life in Christ whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. And so when Jesus comes to Paul and says, Don't be afraid, I'm with you. He knew what that meant. He knew I'm for you. He knew I'm close to you and I'm for you. He knew, he knew that he said that Jesus would mean that I am the sovereign one and I'm with you. So you don't need to be afraid of these people in Corinth. You can speak up. By the way, here you won't be harmed. Other places you will be, but here you won't be harmed. Uh, I have many people here. Keep talking. You will You will see. He comes to us with that same word. And he says, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Whatever it is that you're facing, don't be afraid. Whatever is tempting to discourage you, don't let it. Not as an act of your will. Not because you're stronger than whatever it is that's threatening you. But because I'm with you. I'm your shepherd. I'm the sovereign one. I'm the wise one. I'm the one who loves you. I'm the one who's for you. I'm the one who's with you. Don't be afraid. In fact, the night that Jesus was betrayed, one of the things that was on his mind was that they'd be afraid he was leaving them. Uh, they didn't quite get it, but as he began to talk and he was going to another place, you, you could just feel the tension arise in that, in that room and the fear that would come over his his, his disciples who said, don't, don't, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't, don't worry about this, he would say to them. And thus one of the key words to them was that I'll be with you. My spirit's going to come and I'll be with you and I'll be in you. I'll be that close to you, so don't be afraid. And that word is the same to us. That night that he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples. 
And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Interesting expression. Do you remember Nehemiah? People were discouraged. The enemies were all around. They were afraid. What did Nehemiah say to the people? He said, remember the Lord. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Remember me. Think about me. Who am I? I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who took your guilt upon myself. I'm the one who loved you like that. I'm the one who solved the problem. I'm the one who came to you. I'm the one who's with you. Again, that verse, Romans chapter 8. We read of Christ, this very one. where The Father says, if, if I'm for you, who can be against you? If I didn't spare my son, my only son, but I gave him up for all of you, will I not also along with him give you every good thing? Why won't you trust me? He says, look at what I've done. I know what I'm doing. You may be up against the Red Sea. The enemies may be coming the other way. There may be great difficulty in your life when you don't see your way out. Don't be discouraged. So don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that we would have a sense of your presence. Oh, not a tingly one. Not one that we can necessarily feel going through our bones but one that simply is in us that we know yes Jesus is with us as we don't need to be afraid we can speak of him we can live consistent with his calling upon our lives and we can do all that in the midst of this world in which we live Lord Jesus greet us even around this table May we experience your very presence. You said this is your body, this is your blood. We understand you were speaking symbolically, but there was something to that. Something very real about that. Something very real in your presence among us. As we open the word, as we pray, as we come to this table. So Jesus, we simply lay this and ourselves before you and say, please meet us here. Take away our fear. Grant us courage from the very fact that we know that you are with us. So I pray you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in some way that would communicate that to us. That we leave this place with that assurance, that confidence, and that courage. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who know themselves to be sinners in His sight without hope except in His sovereign mercy and who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as He's offered to us in the gospel, that is, as the Savior of sinners. That lets us know that He's with us, that we're with Him, that He's for us, we can trust him and that we need not fear that's true for you let me invite you to come these two sections can come down this uh, aisle to my left these two down the aisle to my right take a piece of bread dip it in the cup and just let resonate in your head one word Emmanuel God with us please come Pray with me, Father in heaven, that's our heart's desire that your kingdom would come. We know that you've called us to be a part of the coming of your kingdom. Though you rule and reign, you've called us to bear witness of your rule and your reign, your kingdom. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant us courage to do that. God, we confess there's so much in the world in which we live that discourages us. Uh, You know better than we, it's a difficult place. There's so many fears that even overtake us in our own lives, for our relationships, for our work, for those we love. So we pray that you would grant us a great sense of your presence, 
that that would be the distinguishing characteristic of us first and foremost, that people would know that you are with us so that whatever it is that we do, that people would give glory to you to realize they could have never done that had God not been with them. God, may that be true in the course of our church, that as people see the ministry that comes from here, they would realize, oh, that's God at work, that they would see you. When they see the love that we have for each other and even for the world, I pray that people would say that's the work of God in them. So please be with us. Father, those who are struggling in various kinds of ways, we think this morning of Seth and Mindy Duell as they were in that horrible car accident this week. Uh, I pray to give you thanks that Mindy and the children are fine. Pray for Seth as he recovers from his fractures in his skull. And God, you would be gracious to them and that you would heal him. And be with Mindy and the kids that this would be a time when they would look to you and know that you really are with them. In fact, you were with them even when this accident, as we call it, happens, happened. And that you're still with them and that you will bless them and keep them. So help them, Father. For any of the ones in our congregation, Father, we have many who are struggling with this and that and some very serious this and that's. And so I pray that you would let them know that you are close to them, that you are with them, that you were with them when this difficulty happened. That you were not asleep. That you were ruling and reigning. That you were for them. Though it may not seem that way to them at the, this time, I pray, that you would grant them grace to receive strength from your very presence and the very fact of your presence. They would be in peace and not be afraid. Father, we pray that you would enable us to be generous as you're generous. And even as we have given this morning some and some will give as they leave, I pray, God, that, the, that none of that was given out of fear or superstition, but it was all given because we know that you're with us and we know that you will bless this work. And that many will receive help from the resources of our community and be blessed and give you thanks to know that you are even with them. That's our heart's desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you of our service on the 24th. Uh, tomorrow night uh, for our Christmas Eve celebration. Please be with us. The response to the benediction is Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.